Now let me be provocative. Something exciting me this week. You may not think it, but I get excited about politics. I got a candidate. I got a candidate, and you don't think he can do it, but I know he can do it. Go Joe Biden 2024. That's what I'm saying. Well, I, 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 do you see what just happened? Do you see? No one knew how to react to that. Do we clap? Do he joking? What do I do? You know I'm a Trump fan. Come on, y'all. Yeah, no, no, no. No. Now you don't know exactly what's going on. Because in reality, if I'm a Trump fan, I'm a Carolina fan. Yeah. Okay, no. If you're a Biden fan, you're a Duke fan. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Uh, we're going to go to communion now. Uh, if you would. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Here's what we're doing. Here, here, here's what, okay. I know Tess over here just had a heart attack. Like, are we going to have a job on Monday? There's a called meeting, by the way, after service. It, yeah, I guess we just have another thing to talk about now. Uh, here's the reason I bring this up. Because I, you can't say those two names and not have and not take a position. Those two names are going to cause you to go one way or another. And those two teams are going to cause you to go one way or the other. Now, I know you Wolfpack people are like, I don't care about either of them. I get that. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I knew that was coming. The reason I bring up these things is because in today's passage... You see people moving in one of two directions, but the thing you don't see is neutrality. There's nothing neutral about how these people come to Jesus. Either there's a group moving away from Jesus or there's a group moving towards Jesus. There's nothing in between. And so I just wanted you to feel that. I figured those things could get you there. Here we go. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I don't know why I said Matthew. You'll know why here in just a second. Matthew's been on my mind. We're in Luke. Luke 5. Luke 5. We're picking up in a passage right on the heels of Jesus healing a man with leprosy and a man paralyzed. And right on the heels of those those two stories, we hit this next one. This story where we see no neutrality. Either a moving toward or a moving away from Jesus. We pick up in verse 27. Really, guys, you're going to see in just a second. Luke 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out. And he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. We're going to just stop right there in the passage. This Levi, this Levi who Jesus calls, goes by another name, Matthew. This is the calling of Matthew as his disciple. Been thinking about Matthew a lot this week. And here's the thing about the calling of Matthew, this calling of Levi. This is the most unexpected disciple to be called. Of all the disciples to be called, this is the one you wouldn't call. I mean, Jesus even calls a zealot, one who is fighting against Rome. The occupation of of the promised land. Jesus picks up one of these political radicals. That makes even more sense than Levi. This is the most unexpected guy to pick for your disciple. Here's the thing about tax collectors in the Roman world. Often, the Roman Empire, they would bid out, they would subcontract out the collection of the imperial revenue. 
And so they would make a call out and the highest bidder would get the position. And so you would have to pay a very high fee to Rome. You had to guarantee they were going to get their tax. And you would have the full weight of the Roman state behind you. But why would someone want that position? Because after you paid off Rome, everything else is gravy. It's money in your pocket. And so tax collectors, they extorted people for large amounts of money. The reason you wanted to be a tax collector is because you knew you could get the money to pay off to Rome so they'd get their cut. And then Rome would allow you to take as much as you could get from everyone else. And so being a tax collector was a very lucrative position. You made a lot of money doing it. And you can understand why people didn't like tax collectors. We get just a glimpse of how lucrative being a tax collector could be. Because later in the Gospel according to Luke, we come in contact with another tax collector. You know his name. He was a short little man who climbed up a tree. I know there's a song. I'm not going to sing it. Um, His name was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs up that sycamore tree, wants to see Jesus as Jesus comes into town. And Luke tells us he's a chief tax collector. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house to eat, Zacchaeus. He goes to Zacchaeus' house, and it's in that moment Zacchaeus is converted. And in his conversion, Zacchaeus says something to Jesus that tips us off to just how wealthy Zacchaeus was as a tax collector. Take a look at how, what Luke records, Luke 19, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up, said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, if I cheat you of something, I'll just give it back. I'm not wealthy enough to give you four times what I just stole from you. Zacchaeus had done just such a good job of cheating the people. He's this wealthy that he says, whatever I've cheated, I'm not going to give it back to him. I'm not going to double it or triple. I'm giving four times what I've cheated people. I'm giving that back. That's how wealthy this guy was. And so you've got to understand that Levi, this Matthew, is working in the same industry as Zacchaeus. Levi is not a good dude. He's not in an honest industry. And those around him would have known that. And to complicate things, it's not like he's like a Roman guy, like like a Roman citizen who's taken on the job of being a tax collector. He's a Jew, which makes it all the worse. One scholar notes how bad this gets this way. Jewish taxmen were among the most despised men in Israel because they collaborated with the Romans. They were considered traitors. And that wasn't it. Because they collected more than they had any right to take, they were considered robbers. And because they had so much contact with the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, they were considered unclean. So you have a traitor, a robber, and an unclean man. And that's who Jesus picks up to be on his team. This is the most unexpected disciple. Now just, let me just take a quick side note. This is a theme that's going to run through the gospel ministry of Jesus. He is going to make contact and bring into the fold people you would never expect. Actually, the most unclean, the most vile, they're being brought into the fold. That's going to be a major theme. Actually, that theme is going to run all the way through the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That message is going to go out into the world. How do I know that? Because George is here. That's right. That's right. That's right. We're still working on Mark, but George is here. That's right. I felt like I had to do something. Don't, don't, I don't want to hear it. Just let me, let me feel like I won. Just once. Okay. 
But this is what Jesus does. Jesus, this is the gospel message. Jesus brings in those you would never expect, those that we would consider the worst of the worst. That's who he's bringing in. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 So that's the story as we have it so far. And what does, what does Matthew do? So as Jesus calls him, this most unexpected of disciples, what, is, what does Matthew do? He gets up and he follows Jesus. And you might think, well, that seems pretty, that seems pretty bold. This is what Jesus will be teaching throughout his ministry. This is the call to everyone that follows Jesus. Actually, what we see happening with Levi is the very thing that Jesus is going to call everyone to if you want to follow him. Later, later this theme that Luke is going to pick up and he's going to keep weaving it into the story, it comes to a crescendo just a few chapters later. Check this out. Luke chapter 14, verse 27, and we'll pick up verse 33. Jesus says this, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Those of you who would not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So that's the call. So what we see Matthew doing, we might think radical, it's actually just the basic message of Jesus. You must give up everything and follow me. This is the call. Now here's the thing. It's not like... Levi, like when he left everything, he goes and he, he, just, he just hangs out with this small band of men that, that, that surround Jesus. It's not like he just goes and secludes himself now from, from everything that used to be. No, Levi does actually the opposite, doesn't he? We pick up in the story, verse 29, here's what happens next. Here's, how, here's how, what Le- Levi does, the first thing out of the gate he does when he starts following Jesus. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, often when we read this part of the story, Jesus just having a meal with people no one else wanted to have a meal with. Sometimes we we talk about that moment where Jesus has this meal, this banquet with everybody else, the people that no one else wants to hang out with. We think of them as marginalized, the oppressed, the poor. And Jesus hung out with the poor and he hung out with the marginalized. But that's not this group. One commentator really brings it up front for us, and it's, it's got some language in it, but come with me. I think you just, we got to hear it, uh, the reality of what's happening at the banquet. Here's what one commentator, how he describes these people. These are not so much what we call the marginalized, but are more like our arms dealers, drug pushers, pimps, loan sharks, and people who sexually abuse others. I mean, this is what, tax collectors weren't good people. They hurt people. They took out people if they didn't pay. This is the group of people Jesus now has a great banquet with. You can imagine, maybe you even feel it a little bit. I feel it a little bit. I feel a little bit like those Pharisees did, don't you? I mean, part of me wants to push back on that. You're not supposed to have a great banquet with pimps and arms dealers. That's not, this isn't the kind of people you're supposed to be hanging out with. But here's what's happening in the story. 
Jesus, in being pushed on by the Pharisees, it reveals what's actually happening in this moment. It's not that this rag, this, this very rough group of people is trying to bring Jesus into the tax collector industry, the tax collection industry. Jesus is pushing up against their life and they're listening. Something about being in Jesus' presence is, is, is somehow... It is attractive. Something about him is magnetic. And so here's a group that actually needs a lot of help. Jesus will ultimately call them those that are actually really sick. Do you see what's happening to that group that actually is very sick, very much in need of help? I would say that arms dealers and, and mob bosses, yeah, they are very much in need of help. They're moving towards Jesus. But the people that have all their religious boxes and all the religious rules and all of their religion nice and tidy, the very people that Jesus is, is challenging by this banquet, they're the ones that think they have it all together and they're the ones moving away from Him. It's the complete opposite of what you'd expect. You'd expect the arms dealers to run away from Jesus and you'd expect the religious people to run to Him. But it's completely reversed here. Because those people that think they got it all together because they've got all their boxes nice and neat, they go to church, they read their Bible, they're more righteous than everyone else, they're the ones that can't stand Jesus. And Jesus here, with an ironic spin, says, you know, it's actually the sick that need me. <laughs> those who think they're healthy, they won't ever come. And so in this moment, you see one group unexpectedly moving towards him because they don't carry with them all of these expectations. They don't carry with them the religious, uh, the religious rituals and rules. They come as they are. They meet Jesus as he is. They don't carry an expectation. They move towards him. But the religious leaders who think they've got him figured out, at least they have their system figured out, Jesus doesn't fit their boxes. And when anyone comes into their presence that doesn't fit their boxes, they're cast out. And so they move away. So it's that, it's that, it's, it's that scene of one group who desperately needs Jesus but comes without boxes and expectations, they move towards. And then you have the other group moving away. It's that dynamic that takes us into what Jesus says next. Because what he says next seems to be just out of nowhere. But it fits exactly the context. We're always wanting to see Scripture in context. Here it is, verse 17. Uh, when I said 17, I meant 33. Okay? Verse 33. Here it is. We'll read to the end of the chapter. They said to him, this is the Pharisees and religious leaders, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In, the, in those days, they will fast. He, he, told, he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment uh, to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and patched from the new will not match the old. And no one who pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine, no, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old one want, wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. 
So two things are happening here. We have two things. We have a confrontation about a religious practice, and then we also have a parable. We'll take them in that order. So here's what's happening. Immediately out of the gate after this great banquet with this very unexpected group of people, the Pharisees want to challenge Jesus on a religious practice, and that is this practice of fasting. And for the Pharisees, the practice of fasting, and for them it was often twice a week, we know this from rabbinic literature at the time, that you fast twice a week and that will ensure you are close to God, that you are right with Him. If you do the right ritual, you keep the right rule, then you will be connected, you will be right with God. And so it's all about making sure you have all of your ducks in a row, you are good enough. And the Pharisees are challenging him because they look at Jesus and his disciples and they're not keeping the rules. These are man-made rules. These are rules that the Pharisees have come up with as a way of saying you're right with God if you do this. And they happen to be in control of all the rules and the rituals. What Jesus does, and don't miss it, is Jesus reframes the religious practice not in terms of rules, but relationship. Fasting is, fasting is a good thing. But it is in the context of this relationship with him. And here he refers to himself as the bridegroom. And this here he's using the marriage analogy. This idea that when the bridegroom, the groom, comes to the wedding, it's great celebration. Jesus is the groom. So we are celebrating. Jesus is with them. And so fasting doesn't have the same, the same meaning when it is connected with the presence of Christ. But there will be a day when he is taken. And two things might be happening here. Either Jesus is referring to the moment where he goes to the cross and he is taken, so it foreshadows the cross. And it also might also mean that this is the moment when Jesus leaves. He ascends to heaven until he returns at his second coming. Whatever the case, fasting, this religious rule that the Pharisees say you have to do to be right with God, Jesus reframes it and says you have to understand fasting not as a rule, but in context of a relationship with me. So Jesus puts himself at the center, not the rule. Do you see this? This is key for what Jesus is doing here. It's not the man-made rule. It's Jesus. He reframes the relationship. And that takes them into the parable. Now, if you've been hearing about parables for years, going to church, you might think well, this doesn't sound like a story. Isn't a parable a story? Actually, in the Greek, to, uh, a, a parable means to throw alongside to throw alongside. So it's like a help. It's like a teaching help, a teaching aid. So this is not a story, but it is a teaching aid. And that's why we call this a parable. So Jesus throws alongside this teaching about the bridegroom and fasting and in the context of him going to the banquet with the arms dealers and the tax collectors, he throws alongside all of this a teaching aid. And two things are part of the teaching aid. It's these two things. It's a new garment patch on an old garment, new wine, old wineskins. You might think, well, that doesn't relate, does it? I mean, I don't, I don't think in these terms. I don't walk around thinking about wineskins and patching up garments. But for Jesus, this would, have, this, would have, this would have made sense to everyone right there in front of him. And what's important for us to see is that the old, the old garment and the old wineskins, they represent the man-made rules and rituals that the Pharisees have set up that demand people do them in order to be right with God. Okay? So this is, this, is, this is what the old represents that. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm bringing something new that surpasses your rules and your rituals. 
The kingdom of God is going to surpass all the rules. And we just saw it in the way he described fasting. So let me summarize it this way. Here's how I want to put it together this way. It's not that rules and rituals don't matter, because I think they do. It's that Jesus and his kingdom will not fit into the Pharisees' strict man-made religious boxes. Jesus calls his disciples to live a life with God that is larger and fuller and deeper than man-made religious, than religious rules can contain. This is key to the story. The Pharisees want to box them in, and because they can't, they are moving away from him. And those that don't bring their preconceived boxes, they want Jesus for who he is, and they will allow Jesus to reveal himself for who he is, they move towards Jesus. One scholar says it even better than I tried to summarize it. I like the way he said it, so I want to quote it at length. He says this, Jesus knew that people like the Pharisees would fail to understand his mission. Some would try to take little pieces of Jesus and patch him onto their old way of doing things. But the gospel will not mix and match with man-made religion. Going back to Levi's party, the Pharisees saw him feasting with sinners. This did not fit their old ideas about what it meant to be holy. Jesus was telling them that it wouldn't fit. He was not there to patch up their tired old ways of being good enough for God. So you can see, I think, a larger, this larger truth in play. When you try to fit Jesus into your boxes and my boxes, it doesn't work. He will break your box. And so the group that wants to put Jesus in a box, because in the end, they're in control, they know what's right, they have it all together, that group moves away from Jesus. Because Jesus won't compromise with them, they move away. But the group that will take Jesus in for who he is, and they fit into Jesus, they move towards him. And I think it's that, those two movements that bring us to application. Because Here's the thing I'm thinking about. Am I moving away from Jesus or am I moving towards Jesus, right? Like that's, that, I think it's kind of almost, it's like ready-made. It's set up on a tee for us. Are you moving away or are you moving towards Jesus? But I don't want it to be that simple. Because I think that's a bit generic. And we'll do generic eventually down the road. I'm sure I'll pull something generic like that. But on this one, I think the way we evaluate if we are moving away, uh, away or towards Jesus is... What are we doing with our boxes? Or maybe what are we doing with our clothes? Okay, let me, let me, go, let me try it this way. Here we go. We move towards Jesus when we seek to live in his box. We move away from Jesus when we try to force him into our box. All right, let me try it another way. Here we go. We move towards Jesus when we seek to put on his new clothes we move away from Jesus when we try to force him to wear our old clothes. Okay, so I think there are two levels to this. I think on, the, on one level, there's this broad cultural level, right? So we live in a day where we are told that how we feel is what is real. And particularly as this relates to gender and sexuality. If I feel like a woman then that's who I am, and I need, to, I need to be honest, and I need to be authentic, and I need to show the world who I am. And then I probably need to go and get some type of surgery or move forward so my body matches who I am. Because you can't tell me who I am, because who I am is what I feel, and that's real. 
And so we have this sliding scale of what is reality. And then we also have this idea that if I feel a desire, then I get to go do it. And what I do with my body only affects me. Right? So I can go sleep with whoever I want. I can go marry who I want. If I'm a man, I can marry a man because that's who I am. And we have this sliding scale of what is moral. Actually, I'll come up with that. And so we have in, in our culture, we have this idea that, 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 that you can be whatever you want to be. If you want to be bi, be bi. If you want to be A, be A. If you want to be, if you want to be multiple things, be multiple things. And if you want to be an animal, be an animal. If you want to be a thing, be a thing. Because what we feel is what is real. Now, that's just a lie from Satan. This idea that you and I get to create truth. And so what we've done is our culture has created boxes of what is right and wrong. And sadly, Christians jump on board. And Christians start to say, well, maybe this piece of the Bible doesn't really matter. Maybe, maybe yes, don't be greedy, but if it's true love, then a man can marry a man. Or a woman can marry a woman. Or maybe we can have multiple people marrying multiple people. And if you feel like you're a different gender, then your anatomy doesn't matter. And so we pick up the pieces of the Bible we want, and then, and then we disregard the other ones, and we have Christians in our day who have come up with boxes of what is right and wrong, tolerance being a big one, authentic being a big one. And what we do is we try to take Jesus and shove him into the tolerance box. We shove him into the authentic box, and we say, and I'm a Christian. Let me summarize it this way. There are a lot of people today, even people that call themselves Christians, that are trying to fit Jesus into their boxes and put on him their clothing of worldly thinking. But here's the lesson coming out of Luke 5. Jesus won't fit in those boxes. So let me just use, let me just use the hot button ones I've picked. Male anatomy will always define a male. A man will always God-ordained marry a woman. And I'm going with Jesus on this because Jesus himself quotes the book of Genesis. In the beginning, there was a man and a woman. So we don't get to pick and choose that. Now, those are two hot-button topics. Those, are, those, those for us who take the Bible in whole, that's an easy one. It's like low-hanging fruit for me. But man, it's relevant. Do not play loose. Do not play loose with the Scriptures. We don't shove Jesus into the cultural boxes. He will not fit. He never will fit. And don't worry, the day's coming when the world will figure that out. It's coming. I don't know when it's coming, but it's going to come. Okay. Easy, right? Like, I feel like all of us maybe can get on board some of these things, right, at some level. Because it's not us, right? But it also hits us at a personal level. That's where it comes home. Here we go. Let me summarize it this way on the personal level. I think all of us have things that we're holding on to that don't align with God's Word, but we're still holding on to them, hoping God will compromise with us. You got any of those? God says you're not allowed to be gluttonous. God, that's, God's Word said, don't be a glutton. But this church keeps giving me peanut M&M's. I think I'm close for God, to get God to compromise with me. I think this is the one area He might compromise. Maybe. Maybe. You ever been hurt by anybody? You holding on to bitterness? God says you're not allowed to hold on to that. That's a tough one. You're supposed to forgive. Oh, it's a tough one. 
Or, or, or what about gossip? It feels good, and you're always right. But the Bible says don't do it. Pornography. The Bible says sure not to do that. But a little bit here, a little bit there. I hope you're getting where I'm going here. We all are trying to fit God into at least one box in our life. Hold on to an old piece of clothing. Pour, hold on to the old wine skin. And yet pour new wine in and think it's okay. God will not compromise with our sin. So the things that we're holding on to, you're going to have to let go of it. Like, I'm going to have to let go of it. God doesn't compromise on these things. Does He show you grace? Yes, He will. Does He have immense mercy? Yes, He does. But do not mistake His grace for compromise. And let me kind of bring this whole thing, uh, this whole application to, to this point. I think this drives us to this, that we need to get rid of the boxes that we try to put Jesus in. And we need to throw away the old clothes of sin that we're hoping Jesus will ignore or compromise on. you got to get rid of it. So when I thought about, like, how does this work? Like, what could you and I do to do that? Now, I get it. Like, literally, really, the next step is stop. Let go. But I thought, isn't there something that you and I could do in practical, everyday life to kind of represent what I think Luke 5 is challenging us to? And then I did the laundry. And then I did the laundry. You know what I found in the laundry? I'm going to put you up a picture. I'll put you up a picture. I don't know if that made sense. I'm going to put a picture up. Here we go. This is what I found. You say you found socks? Not just any socks. Unmatched socks. It goes all the way from Micah all the way up to the adults. That's how many unmatched socks we have in the Yates house. I'm, I'm holding on because you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll find one. Because I was thinking... Maybe we need to throw away like a piece of clothing, right? Throw away a piece of clothing as a way of representing what we need to do. Throw away the boxes we're trying to fit Jesus in, the thing we're trying to hold on to. Maybe we need to throw away a piece of clothing to teach us the reality of Luke 5. I thought, well, I don't want to throw away any of my shirts, but an unmatched sock? I could do that. I could do that because some of those have been around for a long time. So here's my challenge. Let's put it up. Here's the text. Throw away an unmatched sock this week as a sign of getting rid of a sin you've been holding on to. And I'm kind of imagining this in multiple ways. Like maybe you take a, like a permanent marker and you write on that sock, that white sock, whatever it is. Unforgiveness, gossip, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Anxiety, worry. I mean, whatever it is, I need to get rid of that. And then literally throw it in the trash. And if you're like me, you could do it every day. I got... As you can see, I got an unmatched sock for every day. I could do this twice a day. Start to throw away unmatched socks. And maybe if you're not writing on the sock, maybe you write on a piece of paper and shove it in the sock and then throw it away. Some of you like fire, maybe you burn your sock, you know, something like that. The point is this. For as fun as this next step is, because I know all you got unmatched socks. If you don't, you get to preach next week. All right? Because you are more holy than our house. Um is this. I'm trying to figure out something that will put in front of our minds the reality that we have to get rid of the things we're holding on to if we're going to move towards Jesus. Because if you and I hold on to sin in the boxes we're trying to shove Him into, you and I will move in the same direction as the Pharisees. 
we will move away. So throw away an unmatched sock. Let it represent something you're going to let go of. At least make the attempt and move towards Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it challenges us. We don't come up with this stuff on our own. It is by your grace you give this to us. Help us to let go of things that need to be let go of. And as difficult as that will be, you give us the grace and strength to do it. And we pray that in the name of him who saved us, Jesus. Amen.